And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you with John Lott. John, what are you working on these days? Well, uh, I guess the thing that I'm about ready to put out is uh, when I was working at the Department of Justice, uh, I was asked to go and look at the FBI active shooting reports that they put out yearly. Yeah. And uh, it's a mess. Um, They're missing all sorts of cases where people use guns defensively. The news media will go and say, look, between 2014 and 2021, uh, there were uh, only 4% of the active shooting cases. These are cases where guns fired in public, not involving some type of crime, but it may involve anything from a gun being fired and nobody hit up until all the way up to a mass public shooting. Uh, And they claim over those eight years there were about 150 of those attacks. I have gone through that, and I went through this when I was at the Department of Justice, and they are missing lots of cases. But the cases that they miss are essentially all cases where people with permanently concealed handguns stopped these attacks. So They could have been worse, I guess. Pardon? The attacks would have been worse. Oh, yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, And so, I mean, you have many cases where police have said that if it wasn't for the presence of the permit holder, it would have turned into a mass public shooting. These don't get much news attention. Um, On our website, we have a list of what police have said would have been mass public shootings since uh, the beginning of 2000. Uh, There's like 39 of these cases. Are you hearing about car thefts? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been up a lot. I mean, crime, violent crime, generally, robberies have been up. You know, this isn't rocket science about what's been happening with violent crime in the country. You have uh, judges across the country have released in many urban areas half or even two-thirds of the inmates. I know that they were doing this because of COVID, but they were releasing them even into 2022, even though the people in prison – tend to be very young men who are not what one would consider to be at risk from getting COVID. And yet they were still releasing those individuals from from jail. You have uh, district attorneys uh, across the country who have been refusing to prosecute violent criminals. Uh, You have uh, bail reform. Uh, You know, I'll give you an example of kind of some of the nuttiness for the bail reform. Uh, Just a month ago, you had a uh, situation in Michigan where a man had killed a girlfriend and killed two other people. Uh, he was arrested, uh, but he was immediately released on paying about $1,000 in, in bond that was there, and he went and killed somebody else. You know, the thing is, he, he already faced three solid murder cases that were against him. Uh, so that's like three life sentences. So he goes and kills another person. What What's the penalty you're going to impose on him? A fourth life sentence? You think the first three uh, didn't stop him, but the fourth life sentence, he's going to say, okay, I can live with three life sentences, but you put a fourth one on me, that will stop me from doing any more crimes. Right. Uh, You know, it's just crazy stuff. And, of course, police budgets have been cut. New York City cut the police budget by a billion dollars a year in 2020. Uh, You had Chicago cutting the number of police officers by 400 officers. You had big cuts in Los Angeles and San Francisco and other places. You know, you have these district attorneys who are pushing this racial equity stuff so that the people should be uh, arrested and charged 
based on their percentage of the population, not the percentage of the crimes that are committed. So if 13% of the population is black, then 13% of the people arrested for murder should be black. And, you know, the problem is uh, they claim that they care about blacks. They claim that they care about poor blacks that are there. But who who do you think is getting murdered? About 90% of blacks who are murdered are murdered by other blacks. What, what do you think happens to those parts of town? What, what parts of town do you think that these crimes are occurring? And they occur in heavily minority areas. What businesses get closed down? Who disproportionately? And they're heavily crime-ridden, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, who who works in those stores? Who shops in the stores get, that get closed down? Who Who owns houses in those parts of town which are property values are depressed because of the crime that goes on there? So they claim that they care about uh, blacks, but, but you know, it's just the black criminals that are getting let out. And many times, not just the direct victims of crime, which are overwhelmingly black, but also all these other side effects in terms of jobs, in terms of shopping, in terms of property values, in terms of people who own stores. All those things are being destroyed in these areas when you have these higher crime rates. And what's police doing? Well, I mean, I feel sorry for the police. I mean, if even when now they're starting to go and beef up the police again uh, in some of these areas, it can be very demoralizing if a police officer arrests somebody, but they're immediately released uh, with no bail, or they're immediately, uh, you know, they don't get uh, charged with a crime by the prosecutor. As an Illinois instituted a no-bail policy now yeah, or something? No, they just they just did it, and you have sheriffs all across the state and police uh, chiefs all across the state, which are very worried about what's happening there uh, to not have, have bail. Um, you know, I can give you all sorts of cases. Uh, you know, you may remember the uh, uh, case about a year and a half ago in Wisconsin when the guy drove his SUV through the Christmas crowd, killing six people yeah, I and, that. And, and sending 62 others to the hospital. He had attempted to murder the mother of his child with the same SUV. He had been arrested for that. He had three other felonies. The guy's, the guy's 37, and he faced four felonies that would have put him in jail for 30 years. And they let him so go. Again, that's essentially, he's already facing a life sentence. So you think six more life sentences are going to be what's going to stop him if he's already going to be in jail for the rest of his life? And yet they let the guy out. And so he essentially gets uh, what are free crimes out there. Crazy times. Let's take some calls. Bill in Los Angeles to get us started. Hey, Billy, go ahead. Uh, hey, George. Uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, Dr. Lott just mentioned that SUV. I was going to ask you, do you remember a couple days ago when you reported, I believe, uh, two or three days ago, uh, some guy stabbed like five or six people with a knife? Yes. Yeah, and I, I don't hear the media people calling for banning knives because some guy, you know, stabbed a bunch of people. And everybody knows knives are very concealable weapons and very effective because people, they don't make any noise. And, and they can be, I'm frankly more afraid of people with knives than with guns. But, Dr. Lott, uh, I'm a former old-school newspaper journalist who confirmed on this program with you a few months back your claim that the media obscenely distort reporting on firearms crimes, including 
I'm sad to say, Howard Bloom's rant the other day that mass shootings result from the U.S. having 400 million guns, which is the same logic as saying we should ban cars because the U.S. leads the world in car accident deaths. So I, I, don't, I don't see the logic behind these banning ban gun arguments. And if you multiply those 30 people every week at least in, in Chicago, plus another 30 in New York, murdered by gangsters every week. You multiply that times 52, and you see the real problems. It's criminals committing the vast majority of gun crimes, usually with stolen or otherwise illegally possessed handguns, not legally registered rifles or legally uh, uh, used weapons. So th- th- these arguments are just baseless. Your thoughts, John? Well, you know, the, Uni- the United States doesn't have a murder problem per se. There's parts of the United States that do. So 2% of the counties, which make up a little bit over 20% of the U.S. population, account for 56% of the murders. And uh, the the 5% worst counties account for like 75% of the murders that occur in the United States. And, And for that 2%, if you ever look at what's called a murder map, you'll find that almost two-thirds of their murders take place in within 10-block areas within those counties. Murders in the United States are much, much more heavily concentrated than murders are in other countries, and a lot of the murders there are basically drug gang-related. You know, people don't understand kind of what the different Bureau of Justice statistic numbers actually mean. So most murders in the United States are acquaintance murders. And when people hear that, they think, well, it's, you know, a boyfriend and girlfriend that are doing it, or people that are kind of emotionally close to each other. The the vast majority of acquaintance murders are drug gangs, because the members of one gang know who a member of another gang are. Uh, Acquaintance murders include uh, prostitutes and johns or pimps. Uh, They include things like if you're a cab driver and somebody who's in your cab uh, murders you, uh, that's classified as an an acquaintance murder because there was a perceived financial relationship that existed between the cab driver and the passenger there. If the person merely came up to the side of the cab and murdered the cab driver, then that uh, that would be classified as a stranger murder. So... You know, and the and the media, as I agree, has a really huge impact on people's perceptions. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned a couple things. One is, I think very few people know that uh, less than eight percent of violent crime in the United States involves guns in any way. Ninety-two uh, percent, over ni- slightly over ninety-two percent, has absolutely nothing to do with guns. Uh, if you want to go and reduce violent crime, you're going to have to reduce all violent crime, not just the portion that deals with, with guns that are there. But, uh, you know, uh, about two years ago, the Crime Prevention Research Center, we went out and kind of did a very extensive dive on media coverage on defensive gun uses and gun crimes. If you look at the five largest newspapers in the United States, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post. Between those five newspapers, they had over 2,700 news stories involving gun crimes. By contrast, they had only 10 stories about people using guns defensively, and most of the stories that they had had something that went wrong. Um, 
you know, they really give people a real misimpression. It's not hard. On, and if you watch CNN and MSNBC, you would get zero defensive gun use stories over that year. So somebody could think, look, I'm well-read. I follow the news carefully, uh, but I just don't hear any benefits from guns. The only thing I hear are bad things. And even the few times that I'm, they might possibly hear somebody using a gun defensively, something goes wrong. And it's not just, you know, few people would know that people actually use guns defensively about five times more frequently each year to stop crimes than they use guns to commit crimes. But it's not just the news. You, we kind of follow uh, entertainment uh, police shows on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. And uh, uh, you know, it's just amazing. This last year, uh, they really went into overdrive on concealed carry mainly, I believe, because of the Bruin decision last year where the Supreme Court struck down uh, New York's uh, concealed carry law. Um, but, uh, you know, the gun control groups brag about working with producers and scriptwriters for these shows to kind of get their message out. But if you watch show after show this year, and we have them up on our website at crimeresearch.org, show after show this year, had instances where a permit holder either shot the wrong person or uh, got in the way of police and prevented them from doing their job or something else, or had the gun taken away from them, something that went wrong. If, if you look negative, at negative all stuff. these uh, uh, active shooting reports that I was mentioning before, um, you know what we found is that over the nine years from 2014 to 2022, uh, over 40% of the active shooting cases were stopped by civilians with concealed carry permits. Over 60% were stopped. If you look at places where they were legally allowed to carry, not in gun-free zones, you can't expect law-abiding citizens to carry in places where guns are banned. And yet, in not one of those cases did they accidentally shoot a bystander. In not one of those cases did they get in the way of the police. In not one of those cases was the gun taken away from the permit holder. But yet if you watch, you know, the entertainment police shows, you'd think that that's all that happens. Let's go to John in Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Hello, Hello. gentlemen. Thank you so much for your wisdom tonight. I am very passionate about this issue. I have never owned a gun, and since I lost my eyesight four years ago, I won't be shooting a gun for the remainder of this time on Earth. However, this issue is extremely divided because common sense is lacking. The people in our country have a short memory of what happened in 1920 when our government instituted prohibition. For the next 12 years, this country was the wild, wild west. The only people that had alcohol were the criminals and some politicians. That will be the same result if they get through outlawing these guns. So thank you for your wisdom tonight. Um, this country needs to hear more of that. And I come from a state of Wisconsin where hunting is very prominent. Gun collectors are very prominent. And people have the right to protect their family through our constitutional right. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you. Um, that's my comments. And thank you both for all you do. Thank you, John. John Lott, look into your crystal ball. What do you think is going to happen with the gun situation? Well, um I think a lot is going to depend on the next presidential election. Uh, at the end of the next administration, uh, Clarence Thomas is going to be 80. 
uh, Alito is going to be 78. The likelihood that you'll lose at least one of those guys over the next six years is pretty high. And um, right now, at the end of next year, Democrats will have about 65, 66 percent of the district and circuit court judges in the country. Um, you know, they could have in the high 70 percent range uh, at the end of the next administration. And, uh, you know, you look at the decisions uh, that have gone down in the Supreme Court, uh, the, you know, Jackson and Sotomayor and Kagan, uh, the Democrats there, don't believe that there's an individual right to self-defense, let alone that there's an individual right to self-defense with a gun. So right now uh, you have a lot of states like California and New York uh, which are making it very difficult for people to go and defend themselves. Uh, you know, you had the Bruin decision, just so people know. What that said was um, prior to that you had, you had seven states where people had to go and provide a good reason to uh, public officials about why they should be allowed to go and protect themselves outside their home. And very few people would get permits. I had the the list of all the people who had permits in Los Angeles County, for example. A few years ago, they had 245 people that were there. Uh, and the type of people who get it are basically wealthy, uh, very politically connected individuals who would give a large amount of donations to the sheriff's reelection campaign. You're kidding me. You know, that's fine. I'm glad that those people who are wealthy and politically connected are having the option to go and defend themselves, but they're not the ones who are most at risk. As I mentioned before, the people who are most at risk are the people who are most likely victims of violent crime, and that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas. And in Los Angeles, um, uh, even though uh, over 10% of the adult population in Los Angeles was black, they only made up about 5% of the permit holders. Um, Hispanics make up 54% of the population in Los Angeles County. They only made 6.5% of, of the permit holders. And women, nationwide, women uh, make up about um, a third of permit holders. But in Los Angeles County, it was only about 6.5%. Wow, that's low. John, we're going to come back and take final calls with you in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with John Lott. Our final segment here, taking your calls. John, uh, I want to thank you for what you do for America. Well, I th thank you for being there. It makes a big difference the way you educate people. First time caller, Wade in Minnesota. Welcome to the program. Hi, Wade. Hey, thank you, Mr. Norrie and Dr. Lott. I really wanted to thank you. I was in law school over 20 years ago. And based on some of the work you did, I got a law review article published and paid for by the NRA, a Legislative Research Institute, uh, which I talked about how it's not a constitutional right, but a natural right, a God-given right that's not to be infringed. The second thing I wanted to point out is that in 2017, I've actually defended as a concealed carry um, a woman who was being assaulted in a mall parking lot. Wow. And uh, when that was successfully concluded, uh, no shots were fired. I was carrying a Walter PPKS, and um, it didn't even have to clear my holster. I just had to threaten. 
and the assault ended. They they fled. I helped the lady up, and uh, I left before the police arrived because I know, living in Minnesota, what would have happened to me. Um, I'm living in Minnesota where Keith Ellison is the attorney general who paid for rioters during the George Floyd riots, and I live less than four miles from that square. Uh, he paid to get them released. And as a retiree, I'm working part-time for a retailer. He's suing uh, for straw man purchases, and I am employed as a firearm specialist. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is the, the real question, I just want to make those statements. And then the question I have is, I was flummoxed when I was following up on some research I'd done earlier to find that the gun murder rate in Australia actually went up after their huge, you know, after that mass shooting in Tasmania. Um, and the Auckland, uh, University of Auckland, I believe it was an Australian university, uh, produced a paper that pointed out that the law was was counterproductive, as you have indicated repeatedly in your research. And I just wanted you to comment on uh, on the Australia case, if you're aware of that, if you're if you're aware of that sure, research. No. And well, thank you yeah, so much. Thanks very Dr. much for your call. Uh, before I get to the Australia stuff, I'll just mention one of the ironies for somebody who lives in the Minneapolis type area. Um, you had the city council there wanting to. Uh, completely defund the police uh, in voting for it. At the same time, the city council people voted to give themselves $5,000 a week oh, to be able geez. to go and hire private security. For themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, obviously, you know, they understand the benefits from having armed people protect you. Uh, it's just that they think that, you know, somehow they're special, but their constituents aren't. Um, you know, with regard to Australia, I think it's a little bit more complicated. Um, uh, what happens is people will look at before and after averages uh, when, after the big buyback that they had in 96 and 97. The Australian government forcibly bought back about 25% of the guns that were uh, out there. And uh, the problem is, is that uh, firearm homicides, firearm suicides were falling for 15 years prior to the buyback. They, they kind of stopped falling when the buyback occurred. Suicide, total suicides actually did go up some. But here's the problem. Let's say you had a, a straight line, a perfectly straight line that was falling over the entire period of time. You could pick any point along that line, and the after average is going to be below the before average. And yet you look at it and you say, I don't see any change. It was falling at a certain rate before the law changed. It was falling afterwards. I could pick any point there, and I'd get the before and after average, the after average being lower. Uh, what you want to see is, does it fall at a faster rate or a slower rate? Is there some type of discontinuity in the line that occurs there when the law goes into effect? And what you see is it goes from falling to essentially stop falling for about eight years after the buyback there. But Here's an even bigger problem, and that is people were allowed to go and buy guns again after, after the buyback. And by 2010, the gun ownership rate in Australia was actually above what it was before the buyback. So what, if gun control advocates are right, what you should have seen is an immediate start, sharp drop when, when the buyback occurred. And then over time, as people were buying guns again, you should see it increase. 
And that's not what you observed at all. Uh, you, you saw a dramatic slowing in the drop. It was basically flat. And uh, if you look at armed robberies, they are, do actually go in the opposite direction. When the buyback occurred, armed robberies shot up, and then they gradually fell over time when this gun control advocates, you would think, would go and argue the opposite, that it should have fallen dramatically and then gradually increased. And it looks the exact opposite of what they would have predicted. Let's go back to the calls. Let's go to Jim in the Big Island of Hawaii. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Good evening, George, John. Uh, John, appreciate all the work you do. And uh, George, all for your service in the Navy. Thank you, Jim. And Cornelius and all the other vets out there. My dad taught me how to shoot when I was like seven, eight years old. Safety first and all of that. And then, of course, the Marine Corps, you know, I, I was a good shot. I still am a good shot. And the thing is, like the Australia thing, I, I'd read something to where after that buyback that most crimes actually went up, like murders went up 300-some percent, home invasions went up 450 percent. Now, my figures may be wrong. I'll go with the expert John there. But I do believe in the Second Amendment right, and we should be able to have guns, weapons to, you know, protect ourselves, you know, um, or go hunting. Um, the legal things, because when they pass these laws for turning in guns, well, the law-abiding citizens will, but the crooks won't. Right. You're right about right. that. No, I Go ahead, John. I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, you know, uh, in Australia, there's kind of these memes that have gone around and people pre- pass them around. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful what you read on the Internet sometimes. Uh, uh, as I say... Uh, it didn't have the effect. In fact, I would go and argue it had a pernicious effect, but not in the way that the particular meme that you're referring to that I've seen out there. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it was still detrimental, that it didn't uh, lower um, uh, murder homicides and, you know, actually had a, a, a negative effect. Uh, one thing I'll say about Hawaii, I've actually testified there before the state legislature, Hawaii has had registration licensing of guns since 1960. Uh, often people will go and point to Hawaii as having a low murder rate and therefore saying that Jesus shows that uh, gun control works. The thing is, before they had the licensing and registration, they had an even lower murder rate in the United States. Their murder rate actually went up relative to the other states after uh, they passed that. And... Uh, when I last time I testified there, uh, when they were talking about uh, uh, raising or uh, making it even more difficult to register and license your guns, um, the Honolulu police chief testified in favor of it. And before I went there, I told uh, the state legislators who invited me, because I only go and testify if I'm invited by state legislators, to, to tell him in advance two questions. One question was, how many crimes had they been able to solve as a result of registration licensing? And the other one, how much did it cost? And I knew at least the first answer was going to be zero, and that's what it turned out. I wanted him to know the questions beforehand so that he could answer and not say he'd have to go and look it up, but give him plenty of time 
to be able to research it and know. And he, when he testified, he said he couldn't find a single crime that they'd been able to solve as a result of registration licensing. And that's been true in all sorts of places in the United States. I mean, if you are a criminal and you have a gun registered and you leave it at the crime scene, uh, then the gun can be traced back to the criminal. The problem is crime guns are virtually never left at the crime scene. And the few times that they are, uh, it's because the criminal's either been killed or seriously wounded, so you catch them anyway. And a couple times beyond that, that they're left there, they're not registered to the person who committed the crime. And But what the other thing he said was that in Honolulu alone, they were spending 50,000 hours of police time each year to go and run the registration licensing process. Now, police are important, as we talked about earlier. I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. They're critical. There are lots of very useful things that police do. But, you know, if you could point to thousands of crimes that you've been able to solve, you know, at least there'd be some trade-off, or even hundreds, or even a dozen, or even three. But if you can't point to even one crime that you've been able to solve since 1960, and you're taking 50,000 hours worth of police time and essentially throwing it down, you know, the garbage chute there, where it's completely wasted, just think of how many crimes they could have solved if they had used the police time more productively. But the gun control stuff is essentially sucking them away from doing the job that they should be able to do. Next up, Chris in California, west of the Rockies. Hey, Chris. Hi, George. Thank you for taking my call. And hello, Mr. Lotz. Um, I am a biological female, and I am pro-Second Amendment. I really enjoy this call uh, I mean, the show tonight, because I'm not the only female who is pro-Second Amendment with the right to bear arms. And, you know, it doesn't matter what we defend ourselves with. The government has no right to take that right away from us. Because, like your uh, guest said, it's a lot, it is a God-given right. The right to bear arms. I can, you know, women can, or people can use their arms, their hands, um, a rock, anything that they can to defend themselves. And actually... Um, We need less laws punishing people for defending themselves because, as one person said earlier, they had to flee before the police got there because of the repercussions that could have happened to him for saving somebody. Um, The government is supposed to uphold the Constitution, not control the people with the Constitution and manipulate the people with the Constitution. Like in California, I remember when I was a little girl, there we used to have like more rights for guns and then now there's more people. And it seems like even though I'm in a small town, it is growing. I don't feel as safe as I used to when I was younger because it's growing so fast. Like I see farmland disappearing and it seems like um, one time there was a man who came to my door trying to puddle, you know, sell something. And I told him, you know, there's a sign on my property. that says, get off, you know, no trespassing. And I asked him to leave and get off my property. And he refused. And I said, well, okay, I guess I'll call the police. And you know what he said to me that really frightened me? He said, what are the police going to do? And he was right. He could have killed me or harmed me before I could have even ran for the phone. Right. But Look, uh, police response sense. time, even assuming that somebody's able to make a call, uh, extremely fast police time response time is like six minutes, but you often find eight to ten minutes that are there. A lot of damage that can happen. You know, you have 
these laws in California and other places, which, you know, so you have things like these background checks on private transfers. You have waiting periods that are there. So let's say a woman calls you up on an evening. You know that she's law-abiding. You know that she's trained and capable of using a gun. In California, if I were to loan her my gun because her ex is threatening to come by and, and harm her, uh, I'm committing a felony. I can go to jail for five years. Um, you know, it's, it's – unfortunately, a lot of the advice that women get when they're in domestic violence situations or stalking are things like quit your job and move, uh, change your name. Uh, when you do get another job, uh, go and take different routes to work every day. Uh, once in a while, they'll get advice that they should go and uh, take martial arts training. But the one thing that these violence with women groups just refuse to go and talk about is the thing that's going to be by far their safest course of action, and that is to get a gun. You know, in California, uh, you have to get 16 hours of training uh, before you can even apply. In some places in the state, it's like $1,000 to go and get Do they have reciprocity in California with other states, John? No, you, you they don't. They don't. Okay. So if you have a permit in another state and you go and visit in California, you're not allowed to carry your gun there when you get into the state. Ironically, nearly every concealed weapons permit holder I have talked to, they don't want to have to pull that gun. They don't yeah. They don't want to have to do that. No, like the caller earlier, 95% of the time that people use guns defensively is just like what he did, essentially brandishing the gun letting the criminal know that they are able to go and protect themselves, and criminals leave. Even if the criminal has a gun, uh, they leave the situation that's there. And, uh, you know, it's there are other victims that they can go after that aren't going to be as risky for them to go after. And if they run into enough people that are able to go and defend themselves, maybe they'll go and find another line of work. John Lott, keep in touch with us and uh, let us know if there's anything we can do for you, okay? Thanks very much. People can find everything that we have been talking about on our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org. But thank you for being there, George. Thank you, John. We've got that linked up for you at coasttocoastam.com. Up next, Isabella Green joins us. We'll be talking about her latest work called Leaving the Trap, How to Exit Reincarnation Cycle.